This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. Last December, the annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology took place in the vibrant city of New Orleans and brought together tens of thousands of participants from across the world to present and discuss the results of studies that range from initial hypothesis to practice-changing results. In this episode of the Ongezien Brief, I talk with two people about their research and the impact the outcome from these studies may have on the treatment of patients diagnosed with cancer. Dr. Martin is the Associate Director of the University of California San Francisco Myeloma Program and Director of the Unrelated Donor Transplantation Program for Adults at UCSF Medical Center. I'm also talking with Dr. Monica Sony. Dr. Sony is the Director of Specialty Care for the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services, the second largest municipal health system in the United States. She is also the Assistant Clinical Professor within the UCLA Department of Medicine. I'm Peter Hovland, and this is the Oncogene Brief. The Oncogene Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal, Oncogene, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis and treatment, and cancer prevention. For more information on how to support this program, visit our website at Oncozine. And if you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. This is the Oncozine Brief. For the latest news about cancer and cancer treatment, visit our online journal, Oncozine, at www.oncozine.com. On the phone with me is Dr. Thomas Martin. In this episode of the Oncozine Brief, we talk about multiple myeloma and new treatment options for patients diagnosed with this disease. Dr. Martin, welcome to the Oncozine Brief. Thank you. Thank you for having me. In today's episode of the show, I wanted to start with asking you about some of the interesting results from clinical studies presented during the annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology. But before we talk about these studies, why is this meeting so important? ASH is really our yearly meeting that goes over all the important advancements that have been made for that year. And to tell you the truth, we are making advancements every six to 12 months. There's some new news. There's some new breaking data that's really important. And it's it's in frontline treatment of myeloma. It's in early relapse treatment of myeloma and also in treatment of relapse and refractory. The patients that really have no other options, so much important data was presented in all those domains at ASH this year. And it's every year that it's like that. Now, when you look at multiple myeloma, what makes this disease so difficult to treat? Well, myeloma we think these days is more of a chronic illness, but the big problem is twofold. One, there are some patients that have very aggressive disease and those that have very aggressive disease, often their survival is limited to the three to five year range. And we need better therapeutics for that that group of patients. And the second is we don't cure patients with multiple myeloma at this point, uh, point in time. Even those that have uh, less aggressive disease, they continue to have relapses down the road and continue to require therapy. And so we need better therapy for the early relapse patients. We need better therapy to hopefully cure patients at some point in time. If I understand this correctly, you refer to important unmet medical needs. Now, are there other unmet medical needs in relapse or refractory multiple myeloma? 
the other unmet medical need are the patients who have gone through now what we're calling the big four treatments, the proteasome inhibitors, the immunomodulatory drugs, the CD38 antibodies, and the BCMA-targeted therapies. Patients that have gone through those four classes of drugs now are the unmet medical need. And that is what we're looking at right now when we review some of the developments presented at ASH, right? Correct. During the annual meeting, updated results from a Phase 1b expansion study evaluating subcontinuous administration of isataximab by an on-body delivery system in combination with pomalidomide and dexamethasone in patients with relapsed refractory multiple myeloma were presented. As a bit of background for our listeners, isataximab is a monoclonal antibody that targets a specific epitope on the CD38 receptor on multiple myeloma cells. It's designed to work through multiple mechanisms of action, including programmed tumor cell death or apoptosis and immune modulary activity. And CD38 is highly and uniformly expressed on the surface of multiple myeloma cells and making it a potential target for antibody-based therapeutics such as etatuximab. But let's go back to how etatuximab is administered. Today, the drug is delivered intravenously. But the results of this phase 1b study suggest that subcutaneous delivery of isatuximab may have benefits over the current approach. Tell me a little bit about these results. Yeah, so the administration of CD38 antibodies, um, and there are two of them that are uh, you know, approved for use in the, in the United States, in Europe, and elsewhere. One, daratumumab, it's available IV and by subcutaneous injection, and an isatuximab that is available right now by IV injection. And so it is now being tested with subcutaneous injection, and it's much more convenient for patients for them to receive a subcutaneous injection. It's also a little safer. There's less infusion-associated reactions. So the delivery mechanism of esetuximab through this onboard uh, pump that patients can attach to their skin, and the nursing services can do that, will deliver the drug over time. It actually delivers in a very safe and effective means. The combination of pomalidomide and dexamethasone with ezotuximab was initially approved um, based on the Icarus study, and it's a very good triplet combination for patients that have relapse or refractory myeloma. What is the difference in outcome if you compare intravenous administration with subcutaneous delivery? What are the benefits? I wonder, for example, if this is more convenient for the patient. Does it improve the health-related quality of life of the patient? And going a bit further, does this mean, for example, that patients can stay at home rather than going to an infusion center, hospital, or clinic for treatment? That would be ideal if patients actually could place this on by themselves at home. That would really be ideal. And we have to work out a number of things for that to, to happen, in, including reimbursements from insurers. And uh, there's a bunch of steps that have to happen. But it is certainly plausible that that could be a strategy for doing this therapy, and it would make it very convenient for patients, especially with taking an oral medicine, and they can put this on themselves. It'd be really convenient. The outcomes presented at ASH are very interesting indeed, but this was still a phase 1b expansion study. So much work needs to be done, right? But it is an interesting development. Yeah, and the phase 1b is just to prove that it's safe and that also you have similar efficacy as in the, the large randomized phase three Icaria study, yes. During the annual meeting, results of the subgroup analysis of the Ikema trial were also presented. You were involved in this trial, so tell me a little bit more about the key findings from this subgroup analysis. 
Yeah, I've been involved in the Ikema trial really from the beginning. Um, we did the phase one trial of Isotuximab plus carfilzomib and dexamethasone at UCSF, and that led to the phase three Ikema trial. Now, and these data have been presented previously where there was a, a marked advantage to patients receiving the triplet of esetuximab plus carfilzomib and dexamethasone versus carfilzomib and dexamethasone. It was a large multi-center trial. Over 300 patients were involved, and it showed that the triplet had a marked improvement in PFS, a marked improvement in overall response rates, and a marked improvement in those patients having a very deep response, achieving MRD negativity, so a very active rate, uh, regimen of Ikema. Let's take a break. This is the Oncogene Brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of the Oncogene Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Thomas Martin, Associate Director of the University of California San Francisco Myeloma Program and Director of the Unrelated Donor Transplantation Program for Adults at UCSF Medical Center, about some interesting study results presented at the annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncogene Brief. Each day, researchers make new discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Some days they take small steps. Others, huge discoveries lead to giant leaps forward. This progress, both small steps and giant leaps, happens with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are a fundamental path to progress and the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Clinical trials introduce new hope in addition to the current standard of care by allowing researchers to provide participants access to cutting edge and potentially life-saving treatments. So if you're interested in exploring new treatment options while helping to light the path for other patients, clinical trials may be the best choice for you. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more about clinical trials. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Oncazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. This is the Oncazine Brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of the Oncogene Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Thomas Martin about study results presented at the annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology. When you look at the outcome of the study, what was the original goal of the study, especially in this group of patients? Yeah, the original goal was actually just to test what the progression-free survival was for the triplet ESA-KD versus the doublet KD. And we knew the doublet KD had a PFS that was going to be about 18, maybe to 20 months. And we were hoping to improve that by at least six months or more. Um, and in fact, part of the update of this trial um, was to look at, after 44 months of follow-up, what the actual PFS was, and it actually turned out to be 36 months versus 19 months. So it almost doubled the PFS in the triplet versus the uh, doublet. Now that triplet in the one to three prior lines of therapy, that's one of the most, um, you know, most impressive PFS durations that we've seen in the one to three prior lines of therapy. So it's a very, very active uh, regimen. And that's, you know, and that's, you know, a feather in our hat for actually doing this ESA uh, carfilzomib and dexamethasone trial. 
As mentioned, this was a subgroup or sub-analysis, but how does this outcome compare to the entire study? So we did a sub-analysis to try to evaluate in this very high-risk patient population, those that have early relapse was the benefit of ESA-KD still there for the patients that had early relapse versus those that had later relapse. The early relapse, I said earlier that those are the functional high-risk patients. Those are one of our toughest patient populations. And we defined early relapse of those that relapse you know, less than 12 months from the initiation of their most recent line of therapy and those that had two or uh, more prior lines of therapy. Patients who relapse less than 18 months if they've had one prior line of therapy and relapse within 12 months of autologous stem cell transplant. And those are standard definitions and, again, identifies a high-risk population. And the late relapsers are the patients that relapse more than 12 months from the initiation of their most recent line of therapy or those that relapse um, 18 months uh, for patients that just after 18 months or patients that just received one prior line of therapy. So we broke it up into two different groups. Now, they were pretty balanced. Those groups are pretty balanced. When we looked at them, there were some minor imbalances that you would expect because there was a high-risk group and then a, then you know, a not-so-high-risk group with the, uh, the later the later relapse patients. And we showed a significant improvement in PFS in both the early relapsers as well as the late relapsers. So this, this data, I think, was really important data for us to look at. If we looked at the PFS um, in the patients who had early relapse in the ESA-KD arm, it was about 25 months. In the KD arm, it was 17 months. If we looked at the late relapsers, the PFS actually was 43 months. In the KD arm, it was uh, 22 months. So ESA-KD showed significant benefit, no matter if they were early relapse or late relapse patients. But I really the impressive result for me was that even in the early relapse, this high-risk population, we had 24.7 months PFS. That's actually a really important number, and it's a really good number compared to what we would expect for this population. Two important data points include progression-free survival and depth of response. Tell me a little bit more about these outcomes. If we actually look at the depth of response in these patients, and we look at basically the patients who are the early relapsers versus the late relapsers, we did see a higher number of patients that achieved a complete response or better in ESA KD versus KD in the early relapse patients. It was 31% versus 24%. We saw a little bit better in the late relapse patients. ESA KD was 53% versus 31% uh, in the KD arm. We would expect that, again, because these early relapse patients are the more aggressive patients. But we, we also are able to see some MRD-negative patients in the early relapse, which I honestly didn't think we were going to see many uh, MRD-negative CRs. And that was 18% of patients in ESA-KD versus 11% of patients in KD-ARM. In the late relapsers, the MRD-negative CRs were about 31% versus with ESA-KD versus uh, 14% with KD. So again, in both scenarios, early relapse and late relapse are getting a better depth of response. And then the duration of response is, is definitely longer. Um, and that's measured really by partly by the PFS, again, which the numbers I showed uh, told you earlier, about 25 months in ESA-KD for the early relapsers versus 17 months, a big difference. How is this going to impact the treatment of multiple myeloma? 
Is this practice changing? That's a great question. We have a lot of options for patients who have received primary induction therapy and either have one or two or three lapses. We have a uh, we have a lot of options for that patient population. And so when we're all thinking about what's a good regimen for our patients, we have to think about the patient characteristics and what the results have shown. In those people that are lenalidomide sensitive, we know a really good regimen for them is a CD38 antibody plus lenalidomide and dexamethasone as first relapse. We now know that if those people that are len refractory and patients that are lens sensitive, another good regimen is is a CD38 plus carfilzomib and dexamethasone and isatuximab plus carfilzomib and dexamethasone has demonstrated in the overall population a PFS of 36 months uh, versus 19 months, a big advantage. And then if they're an early relapser, this is a really important PFS of, of essentially 25 months versus 17 months, that in these early relapsers, this is a great regimen to select for them and to expect them to have a PFS of about two years. That gets them two years down the road. It gets us uh, to the next generation immunotherapies because this po population typically has a survival that's essentially less than three to four years. So the further we push them down the, 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 you know, the road in remission, the better chance they have the option of um, and the ability to go to other options and other novel immunotherapies. So this is, I think, a very important finding, and it, this is a good regimen for the early relapse patients. To keep things in perspective, progression-free survival is important, but so is health-related quality of life and safety. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? So when we looked at the safety involved in this study, the two agents themselves have um, individual adverse events that you typically see with carfilzomib and you typically see with isatuximab, putting the two together did not uh, cause any increased risk or any increased safety concerns. In fact, they're very well tolerated. In fact, the majority of patients actually were able to receive all the agents throughout the therapy. So this is an extremely well tolerated regimen where the dose density, the ability to get all the all the treatments and all the doses was over 90%. It was pretty amazing. Actually, it was one of the, the best for a relapse, again, a relapse refractory uh, regimen. And patients, I have plenty of patients that are on this combination. And I have some, you know, people are working, people are doing, people are functional, people are able to do things without having a lot of side effects from this combination and no big safety signals. I do think that if you're a patient diagnosed with multiple myeloma, the possibility of less side effects is really important. So this is definitely good news. Dr. Martin, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks for having me. Dr. Thomas Martin is the Associate Director of the University of California San Francisco Myeloma Program and Director of the Unrelated Donor Transplantation Program for Adults at UCSF Medical Center. After the break, we're back with Dr. Monica Sony. Dr. Sony is Director of Specialty Care for the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services, the second largest municipal health system in the United States. She is also an assistant clinical professor within the UCLA Department of Medicine and at the Charles R. Drew University Department of Internal Medicine, where she is focused on residency diversification and pipeline development. Dr. Sony's commitment is to improve quality, equality, and affordability in healthcare, minimizing health-related disparities in care delivery. And that is what we're going to talk about today. Don't go away, stay tuned.
sarcoma. Odds are you've never heard that word before. But for the 40 people diagnosed with sarcoma every day, it is a life-changing word. Life-changing and devastating because sarcoma is cancer. Sarcoma is a cancer of bone and soft tissue more prevalent in children than in adults. More than 6,000 people lose their lives to sarcoma each year. Treatment options for sarcoma are limited and new therapies are desperately needed. More research and increased awareness is necessary to find a cure for a cancer that you probably didn't even know existed until now. Through awareness, advocacy, and research, the Sarcoma Foundation of America is determined to help those affected by this forgotten cancer, to bring hope to the children and adults whose lives are forever changed by a word they had never heard before. Please help us in the fight to find the cure for sarcoma. For more information on sarcoma and the work of the Sarcoma Foundation of America, please go to curesarcoma.org. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. In this episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Monica Sony. I'm Peter Hoffland, and this is the Yonkazine Brief. On the phone with me is Dr. Monica Sony. Dr. Sony, welcome to the Yonkazine Brief. You are the Director of Specialty Care for the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services, the second largest municipal health system in the United States. And that in addition to a lot of other activities, including being an assistant clinical professor within the UCLA Department of Medicine and at the Charles R. Drew University Department of Internal Medicine, where you focused on residency diversification and pipeline development. Now, in this program, we're going to talk about the results of a study in which you and your co-workers looked at the utilization of bone-modifying agents in the treatment of multiple myeloma, particularly among Medicaid patients. And as a bit of background, when it comes to the treatment of multiple myeloma, bone-modifying agents are widely regarded as the gold standard. These drugs, some of which are available as generics, do more than just avert pain. They are life-saving, or they can be life-saving, right? So ideally, adherence to the treatments with bone-modifying agents for multiple myeloma should be at 100%. So when you began to study, you expected to see that adherence to the treatments would be at least around 80 to 90%, maybe with a few exceptions due to patient preference. But when you saw the real numbers, you were shocked, because that was not the case, right? You found that bone-modifying agents were underused and that this was especially among the Medicaid population. So when you read the study results, then there are a couple of questions that come to mind. One of them is, why does this gap exist? And why are economically disadvantaged people not getting the therapies recommended to protect them from major side effects of cancer? And another question, are payers and clinicians alike concerned about this inequity? But before we're going to talk about this, Dr. Sony, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself? Yes. Well, thank you for having me. As you said, Monica Sony, I'm an internal medicine physician who really have been trained in public systems and the safety nets. So places where you see up close and personal, historically under-resourced communities having poor health outcomes. And um, But I've also seen amazing care delivered in those contexts and really whole person care. I'm now Associate Chief Medical Officer at New Century Health. And so my focus is really on um, cancer and cardiovascular disease, you know, the two top uh, reasons for death in the U.S. at least. 
Um, and so kind of pulling together subject matter expertise uh, for vulnerable populations and in this specialty space is what I've been spending my time doing. I live in LA, another you know high density area with a lot of complexity. Um, and so I you know day in and day out think about these issues. Can you tell me a little bit more about the complexity of multiple myeloma? I mean, from a treatment perspective, multiple myeloma has gotten incredibly, incredibly much more complicated over the last few years. New therapies, expensive therapies, but really therapies that make a difference in the lives of patients who have multiple myeloma. The challenge is that there's still good old bread and butter, gold standard stuff that patients should be getting that you would kind of consider foundational. And that's what we spent our time looking at. Not the new sexy stuff, but really the old traditional medications that work, which are kind of bone disease modifying agents. And um, we actually looked at our own data, which last year we supported care for over 100,000 oncology patients, so pretty robust data set. And we took a look to see, okay, are patients getting the care that is recommended, the standard of care? Tell me a little bit more about the treatment with bone modifying agents. Why, for example, is this important and how does it benefit the patients? But in addition to that, how does insurance coverage play a role in treatment decisions? And another question that's probably hard to answer, is there a difference between treatments between patients on Medicaid versus patients who have commercial insurance? Yes, absolutely. So we know that those drugs work, right? They prevent um, skeletal uh, fractures, bone pain, and actually there's some data that people actually live longer if they receive them. And what we found was when you look at the overall population of patients we supported, only about 60% were receiving that gold standard care. So a big gap. That has actually been published by others in real-world data. What we found, uh, which had not been published before, is that the gaps were larger depending on the type of insurance the patient had. So if you had commercial insurance versus Medicare versus Medicaid, you were more or less likely to actually receive th that therapy, those bone-modifying agents. So really shocking finding. Well, that's absolutely the case. Now, when you look at the study outcomes, not all patients were treated equally, right? Yeah, this was where it was tricky. So the angle that we have that we look at from a data perspective is, did the physician or the practitioner actually offer it to the patient? So these are drugs that are covered by insurance. They are reimbursable, um, <clears throat> but the rates are different between commercial and Medicare and Medicaid, and the reimbursement rates for Medicaid are the lowest. And so we do know that. And there are differences in practice behavior. So I, again, I'm super empathetic to providers, but it looks like the physicians themselves, the practitioners, are not offering that therapy to Medicaid patients at the same rate as they are to other patients. That is what's sort of the unbelievable part. You mentioned that ideally, and we mentioned it also at the beginning of the program, 100% of patients who need these therapies should be able to get them. But that is not the case, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Commercial was about 65%, Medicare was about 60%, and Medicaid it was 51%. So what are the consequences of this difference, the health-related disparities you've seen in this study? Yeah, the consequences are that you then have a population with more fractures, more bone pain, and, and loss of life, right? So lower survival. So we can conclude that there are real negative consequences, right? Yeah, huge ramifications. Tell me a little bit more about patients diagnosed with multiple myeloma. Is there a population link? 
what I mean by this is if you look at black patients versus Hispanic patients or white patients, are there major differences in diagnosis and treatment? How does this impact patients overall? Yes, yeah. Multiple myeloma, absolutely. Black patients are overrepresented um, ba- compared to the baseline population. So it's a, it's a very tricky space. You see that, I think it's, and I may not be getting my numbers exactly right, but around 11% of all multiple myeloma patients are, are Black. That's obviously more than the general population. And, you know, the other place that we didn't talk about yet is clinical trials for multiple myeloma. It's less than 2% have Black patients. So you have a a patient population that really is enriched, um, unfortunately, in this disease state, not being studied at the same rates, not being treated at the same rates, and definitely the death rates um, are higher for Black patients. The receipt of transplant is lower for Black patients. I mean, there's a lot of disparities within the subgroups that you are calling out. Now, you're a doctor, and you may see this problem close up. From where you are, your perspective, what can be done to eliminate these problems? What can be done to get rid of this disparity, this disparity you see? This is a space where actually we have a lot of evidence. So you're right. It's complex. It's multifactorial. One thing is not going to solve all of the problems. But do we know what can? Absolutely. So let's you know start with access. We know that the Affordable Care Act and expansion of Medicaid actually increased Uh, overall survival, right, for patients with cancer, increased screening, earlier date to diagnosis. So that is one thing, right? We still have states that did not expand the ACA. I'm not saying that from a political slant. It just makes a difference for patients, right? Like it actually closes disparity. So that's one, right, is coverage. Workforce. Um, There's a lot of evidence now that actually if there is racial and or ethnic or language concordance between provider and patient, outcomes are better. So we kind of can't pretend that it's all the same. It's not all the same. There's relational aspects of it. There's trust. We saw this with COVID and vaccine hesitancy, that relationship so important. So that's another part, thinking about our workforce recruitment, retention, diversity there. Um, That's the other part of it. And then I think, you know, there's a lot of work around unconscious bias, making sure that folks are not inadvertently mistreating certain populations. Of course, that's a critical part as well. And then I would be remiss if I didn't talk about what I will talk, discuss as sort of environmental determinants, right? Do you have access to healthy food or do you live in a food desert, which causes obesity, which is an increased risk for cancer, right? I don't want to pretend like we, that you can't, you have, you don't solve for those things. Those are just as important as the other things I, I talked about. You have to do all of those things to try to eliminate disparities. Let's take a break. This is the Oncosim Brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of the Oncosim Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Monica Sony. Dr. Sony is Director of Specialty Care for the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services, the second largest municipal health system in the United States, about some interesting study results presented at the annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncosim Brief. My name is uh, Jinghui Zhang. I'm the chair of a computational biology department at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. I feel so excited about seeing the potential impact, not only on the kids treated at St. Jude, but across the world. One of the major advantages we have in St. Jude is that because of the resources we have, we were able to utilize the most comprehensive way of profiling genomes through this study. As a data scientist, I feel very passionate about sharing data. We also want to enable talented scientists 
to analyze data using the innovative tools and make new discoveries on top of what we have made. And I think this is a great use of the trust we got from our donors. Finding Cures, Saving Children. Learn more at stjude.org. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. This is the Yonkazine Brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Monica Sony. Dr. Sony is Director of Specialty Care for the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services, the second largest municipal health system in the United States, about some interesting study results presented at the annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology. I must say, this sounds very complex, and it sounds that there are many different factors involved in eliminating the health-related disparities. And interestingly, not everything is directly related to treatment. For example, the importance of food and nutrition has been observed in patients with type 2 diabetes, for example. I remember a study a few years back, and this was about type 2 diabetes, so unrelated to cancer. But the study showed that teaching these patients how to read and understand food labels of the products they bought in the grocery store helped them make good decisions about food and nutrition. And this had a very positive effect on their health. Now, again, as I said, this may not directly impact patients diagnosed with multiple myeloma, but it is just one example how patients can benefit from help that goes beyond treatment. But all of this is very complex. And as you said, it is not just one thing we need to do or need to pay attention to or pay close attention to, actually. We need to pay attention to all these factors, right? Yes. And actually, I'll give you the parallel study of this. So a group out of New York primarily focused on low-income populations who had cancer and had screened positive for food insecurity. They put them into a randomized trial. They either gave them access to a food pantry, they gave them a voucher, or they had kind of food delivered. There were three different arms. And what they found was that actually the cancer treatment completion rates went up when you actually provided for, you know, some you know access to food. So we 100% know that those upstream factors have downstream implications. Another issue not often mentioned is that for economically disadvantaged people, but this may also impact other patient populations, Taking off from work for treatment may be very difficult. Or asking a parent, child, or friend to take off from work to take them to a clinic may not always be possible. So how important is it to understand this? And should this impact treatment decisions? Yes, there's some great studies out coming out about time toxicity. Right, we talk about clinical physical toxicity, financial toxicity, but time toxicity for the individual and their community around them, so important. It's been looked at in pancreatic cancer, after surgery, how many days do people even spend at home versus in a healthcare facility? We actually have a, another uh, publication coming out in NCCN um, soon that looks at um, even hypofractionation in radiation therapy and how many days you can save a patient actually um, from having to go into the office without any sacrifice and outcomes. So this is a, a critically important part of what we need to be thinking about. Absolutely. A patient's whole life. Your study was very specific, showing that authorization levels for treatment with bone-modifying agents among Medicaid patients was very low. 
Now, in your opinion, and maybe this involves the broader oncology community, what is the most important takeaway from this study? Maybe I can phrase this a little bit different. In the day-to-day practice, what should an oncologist or hematologist keep in mind when he or she meets with a new patient? What is the right thing to do? Or are the factors you've mentioned earlier in the program creating such a complex environment that one single doctor can't influence this on his or her own? Yes. To me, when you start to see big gaps like this, 40% of patients not receiving standard therapy, that's not an individual error anymore, right? That's a systems issue. It means we have not set up the healthcare system and the practice in a way to facilitate the right thing being done at the right time. So I try to focus attention away from that doctor didn't do the right thing to more, why isn't our healthcare system facilitating that? So examples of things that have been proven to make a difference is sort of like a checklist mentality, right? Like what's built into the electronic health record on entry to clinic, on exit to clinic? Did you make sure that from multiple myeloma, every patient, you know, got the drug, they got their vaccines, they got referred to palliative care, if they have metastatic disease, all of that stuff, just codifying it, making it easy to do the right thing is is the direction I want um, all of our health systems to go in. And then team-based care, an individual practitioner can't do this all on their own. So thinking about, to be honest, reimbursement reform so that you have the social worker funded and the community health worker funded and the navigator who can help the patient with evidence-based, receipt of evidence-based therapies. Now, in addition to your study, a similar outcome was presented at the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. When you look at these outcomes, does insurance coverage really impact treatment decisions? I think we would be naive if we didn't say that, of course, a patient's coverage impacts what happens from a treatment perspective. There are some ways that we've created that ourselves, right? Each insurer, even within Medicare Advantage, can choose different drugs to be on formulary. We have prior authorization expectations that you use drug A or drug B. So absolutely, the physician and the practitioners are aware of the patient's insurance. I think the most nefarious interpretation of that is that they're then doing different things based on reimbursement structures and that if you're going to get paid more for one person versus another, do you triage them? Do you prioritize them? I hate to imply that, but it's sort of hard not to when you look at the numbers like that, right? This is a national study across multiple states, multiple different provider archetypes, academic and community and multi-specialty. And we really found sort of the same outcome that others have found as well. And so um, I just can't erase the fact that, yes, we're treating patients differently based on their insurance coverage. Dr. Sony, thank you so much for joining me today in the Younger Seam Grief. I think we learned a lot today, but unfortunately, I'm afraid that this will not be the last time that we're talking about disparities in healthcare and access to treatment. Again, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. In this episode of the Oncogene Brief, I spoke with Dr. Thomas Martin, Associate Director of the University of California San Francisco Myeloma Program and Director of the Unrelated Donor Transplantation Program for Adults at UCSF Medical Center. And I spoke with Dr. Monica Sony, who is Director of Specialty Care for the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services, the second largest municipal health system in the United States, about some interesting study results presented at the annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology. I'm Peter Hovland, and this is the Oncogene Brief. For us here at the Oncogene Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners, 
sponsors and advertisers for your ongoing support. Your support makes it possible that you can hear this program via PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. And you can also download our program via podcast and streaming media, including iTunes, Spotify, Audible, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and nearly anywhere you can find a good podcast. For more information about supporting the Oncuisine Brief, visit our website, Oncuisine, at Oncuisine.com. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866, that is 66866, and we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all, and thank you for listening, and join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. Oncazine Brief is a global medical educational service from the publishers of Oncazine and ADC Review, the journal of antibody drug conjugates. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from our commercial underwriters and advertisers and the listeners to this station. For more information about advertising, underwriting, and sponsoring options, visit Oncazine at www.oncazine.com forward slash podcasts. The Oncazine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content in this program is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice and guidance. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.